industrial accidents, ancient Solving poisoners, crime, poison prevention. Spills. This is Toxic History. Dr. Keahi Horowitz will be speaking to you about the Oregon State Hospital poisoning of 1942. So, in a day and age when we're facing a national public health crisis that seems to deepen the divide between the different parts of our society, it can be hard to imagine that uh, how we'll get through it, how we'll find a way to make a better way forward for those who follow us. But as we all know, this is not the first time, nor is it likely to be the last, that we have had to rise to the challenge of making change on a societal level to fight a public health threat. Back in 1942, Americans were faced with a different threat. This one was quite insidious because it rested on the shelves and countertops in the very cupboards and basements and in the homes and institutions across the United States. When it struck, it was largely by accident, but it left behind a trail of death. It would take one fateful November day, almost exactly 79 years ago today, to finally light the fire that would bring Americans together to find a way to make that change and that better way forward. November 18, 1942 was a Wednesday, just like any other at the Oregon State Hospital, a state-funded mental health institution. Superintendent Dr. John C. Evans was about to head home, exhausted from yet another day of caring for his patients, as well as his continued uphill battle for funding at the state legislature. Frustratingly, he had failed to obtain that funding yet again. And with the war effort in full swing, many institutions were simply being asked to tighten their belts for the foreseeable future. In the hospital, nurse Ali Wassel and her colleagues were trying to crowd the over 2000 patients to the dining areas for the evening meal, a daunting task for an already thinly spread staff. And if it was hard for the nursing staff, you can imagine it was hard for what few non-medical staff worked that night as well. Those positions were not so easy to defend as necessary or essential, especially when there was a war going on. In the kitchen, overworked chief cook Mary O'Hare and her assistant cook, A.B. McKillop, were in charge of a limited staff, trying to prepare meals for every patient and get it out to the wards on time. As they had many nights before, they needed help. So they turned to help from entrusted higher functioning patients like George Nosen, a patient admitted voluntarily for epilepsy, which was then considered a nervous disorder. Even with a skeleton crew, the evening meal of scrambled eggs got done and was delivered to the different wards. The kitchen staff breathed a collective sigh of relief and started to clean. Upstairs, Nurse Wassel received her first trays, but something seemed off to her. She snuck a bite before sending them out to her patients. Something was wrong. The eggs tasted soapy. She held her trays back and prepared to face the protests of her patients when suddenly everyone could hear the cries. Not five minutes after the trays left the kitchen, calamity and chaos erupted around the hospital. Patients were vomiting, doubling over in pain. Some said their mouths were numb and others that they couldn't move, that they couldn't breathe. Within one hour, several patients had already died. The nursing staff sprang into action. The on-call physicians were summoned from their beds and the full resuscitative might of a mental health institution in 1942 was put in motion. According to the report published afterwards, patients were given salt and sodium benzoate, nicethamide, epinephrine, caffeine with sodium benzoate, neosinephrine subcutaneously, 50% dextrose intravenously, whiskey by mouth and external heat, but to no avail. Quickly, patients with milder symptoms were sent back to their rooms, their food confiscated. Suspicion had already fallen on the eggs. Unfortunately, by the end of the night, 
Over 400 patients fell ill and 44 had died. Early in the morning on the 19th, Oregon Governor Charles A. Sprague woke to this new emergency. Was this a mass murder? Sabotage from foreign enemy agents? Not two months earlier, a failed bomb strike had targeted Brookings, Oregon. Was this yet another attack? The governor called the major members of the state government and Superintendent Evans to an emergency meeting to try to get to the bottom of this case. At the center of it all, the eggs. Investigators confiscated all of the eggs in the hospital and started testing them. The newspapers clamored for information, but the governor was careful to control the story going out. Meanwhile, the kitchen staff exchanged worried glances in silence. Now, these eggs were not just any powdered eggs. They were part of war-rationed foodstuffs from a national supply distributed to many institutions and homes across the United States. Was no one safe? All of a sudden, a local scare became federal. The Federal De Agricultural Department halted all national egg delivery. The Army, FDA, AMA, and the Surplus Commodity Administration joined the inquiry. And Arthur Dowell, the president of National Egg Products Incorporated, immediately released a statement refuting the possibility that the eggs were the problem and accused the hospital for inappropriately refrigerating the eggs. Governor Sprague fired back. The eggs were properly stored. It must have been murder by poisoning. Speculation ran rampant. Fortunately, the boots on the ground were already coming up with answers. By the morning of November 20th, the eggs were exonerated. Dr. Joseph Beeman of the State Crime Laboratory and Dr. Frank R. Menning, a pathologist at the University of Oregon's medical school, had tested samples of eggs from every source, from the kitchen pots to the patient trays. Rats fed random samples of the eggs survived, but those fed the lethal omelet died within a few minutes. Dr. Beeman's lab later revealed the cause a considerable quantity of sodium fluoride had been found within the deadly samples. Mystery solved? One nagging detail still lingered unexplained. There was no trace of poison in the uncooked batter. As the newspapers would report, it was this fact that weakened the negligence theory. The poison should have been in all the batter, cooked and uncooked. Who then had poisoned the eggs? And even more, where had this poison come from? What was sodium fluoride anyway? The newspapers, taking on the role of educator, provided such helpful analogies as sodium fluoride, more deadly than a poison-fanged snake, and quoted Dr. Beeman's description of it as a white crystalline substance, very similar to salt. Five grains, about the weight of an aspirin tablet, is fatal. The likely source, the large tin of roach powder in the hospital basement. Now, fluoride salts as pesticides weren't new. They had been around for a long time. In fact, one of the earliest documented instances of fluoride-based pesticides, including sodium fluoride, was in a British patent awarded to C.H. Higby in 1896. In 1915, sodium fluoride would be reported as one of the most effective means of cockroach control in the USDA's Farmer Bulletin. By 1919, it would become the recommended pest control agent. In 1925, R.C. Rourke received the first U.S. patent for fluoride insecticides. His formulations were less soluble, so they wouldn't damage the plants they were sprayed on. Combined with the fall from grace of the more toxic arsenic-containing compounds of the 1930s and the fact that DDT wouldn't be marketed until the 1940s, fluoride pesticides took over the market. Now, for insects, the fluoride salts would solubilize on mucous membranes, allowing the fluorine ion to disassociate. Local mucosal irritation and cellular deaths soon followed through various proposed mechanisms, including direct disruption of enzymatic activity, 
alteration of the acidity of the cellular environment, and binding and precipitation of calcium fluoride salts. Shortly after exposure, mucosal inflammation and sloughing would occur, followed by a profound hypocalcemia, dysfunction of cellular respiration, and the symptoms associated with those derangements. It's not surprising then that the postmortem examinations of those who died on November 18th showed those exact abnormalities. Effective for pest control, highly toxic to humans. Later studies and case reports would suggest that the toxic dose of sodium fluoride was 70 milligrams per kilogram, but it was likely much less. Worse, commercial products were often highly concentrated, over 90% in the formulation that caused the disaster and from similar products at the time. It really wouldn't take much to cause harm. Surely products that were packaged for home use were different, or at least safer, right? But if you were to look at every jar and tin in a common cupboard at the time, you would find little, if any, evidence that this or any other toxic compound was even there. But it was. You see, up until the late 1940s, there was no requirement that pesticides have labels about their contents, let alone warnings about the potential dangers. The 1910 Federal Insecticide Act was the only regulatory law in place and was designed primarily to prevent adulteration of farming chemicals. As the wheel of industry turned out products for the general public to keep their homes pest-free, no further regulatory change was really made. But though politicians and everyday people didn't pay it any mind, the medical community did. As sodium fluoride, that safer alternative to arsenic-based pesticides made its way into people's home, the potential for disaster grew. Even before 1942, multiple deaths had already occurred from accidental consumption of fluoride salts, including two major poisoning events in 1936 and 1940. In 1941, more than a year before the Oregon State Hospital disaster, Oregon State chemist J.D. Patterson petitioned the Western food and drug officials to require coloring be added to poisons to prevent incidental ingestion, a request echoed by the Oregon State Board of Pharmacy on November 21st, 1942, immediately following the tragedy. Doctors Lidbeck, Hill, and Beeman also remarked on such a need for better labeling in their JAMA article about the deaths at the Oregon State Hospital. A national movement was brewing, and 1942 was the tipping point. Back in Salem, Oregon, there was a break in the case. On November 22nd, 1942, four days since the start of the investigation, Assistant Cook McKillop confessed. In what would be later characterized as succumbing to his guilt, McKillop recanted his earlier testimony. On initial questioning, McKillop had reported that he was the only one preparing the eggs and had stepped away for only five minutes, a fact he reiterated emphatically, leaving space for another unknown person to have adulterated the meal. Now, however, he admitted that he had, against hospital policy, given his keys to George Nosen and sent him to get powdered milk to add to the egg mixture. How could he have known that Nosen would walk into the second cellar and not the first? How could he have known that the tin of white powder that Nosen brought back was not powdered milk? McKillop was only one of four paid employees working that night. The rest of the workers were only entrusted patients lending a hand. But that terrible night, as it became obvious that the eggs were the source of the poisoning, McKillop made Nosen retrace his steps. I took that patient down with me and said, show me where you got the powdered milk. And he showed me the door to the fruit room. I says, there's no powdered milk in there that I know of. And we went right in. And I says, where did you get the powdered milk? And he says, in this keg right here. And I says, that's not powdered milk. And he says, what is it? And I says, I don't know what it is. 
So then we came upstairs to the kitchen and I asked Miss O'Hare, what was in the barrel in the fruit room? And she said, it's cockroach powder. And I told her, well, that's what he brought me for powdered milk. She says, God almighty, that is poison. On the night of the murder, the poisoning, long before anyone else, McKillop, Nosen, and Mary O'Hare all knew what had happened, but it stayed silent for fear of the consequences it would bring. Now, at last, Nosen and O'Hare spoke out and corroborated McKillop's story. Both cooks were arrested for manslaughter, an accessory under the culpable negligence statute, and were brought before a grand jury. What do you think happened next? As I mentioned at the start, this event was a moment of change, not of blame. Dr. Evans testified in the cook's defense, noting that, quote, we used the same methods in combating the poison that would have been required for the sodium fluoride. Knowing the specific compound involved would have changed little. The governor even instructed the public be informed that it was an accident. By the end of the trial, the cooks were released on bail and public opinion was that the whole thing was a ghastly accident, not involving criminal intent. Now they were shifting their stance, demanding regulatory change to prevent such accidents from ever happening again. Among their numbers, Dr. Evans. The months of media attention brought about by the day of the poisoning and the lead up to the trial had placed a giant spotlight directly on the hospital and Dr. Evans wouldn't waste his opportunity. He called attention to the understaffing and underfunding of his institution and this time the state legislature could not ignore him. One day, even before the trial concluded, the Ways and Means Committee granted the hospital and six other state institutions nearly $3 million. That same day, January 29th, 1943, a bill was introduced to the state legislature to regulate the sale and handling of pesticides in Oregon, with specific stipulations on new laws requiring coloring and clear labeling to, quote, eliminate the danger of error resulting in tragedies such as occurred in the state hospital last November. This bill would pass with no opposition, and on March 9th, the governor signed it into law. A key provision of this new act, any substance or substances highly toxic to man was deemed unlawful to manufacture or sell in the state unless it had a label bearing the skull and crossbones, the word poison in red on a background of distinctly contrasting color, and an antidote for the poison or poisons contained within, as well as the net weight of the substances. This was revolutionary. No law up to this point had extended such protections into the public and economic center, and it did not go unnoticed. On April 2nd, 1943, Representative Virgil Chapman of Kentucky introduced a bill to Congress calling for changes to federal legislations to, as the newspapers would report it, prevent scenes of horror, such as the recent fatal poisonings of 47 inmates of the Oregon State Hospital. The Undersecretary of Agriculture also supported this legislation, and soon congressional hearings were underway. As the chairman would note during one such hearing, another important feature of the proposed legislation is the inclusion of provisions for the protection of the public against poisonings by requiring adequate cautions on the label of economic poisons to prevent their being mistaken for flour, sugar, salt, baking powder, or other similar foods. In 1947, Congress would enact the Federal Insecticide, Fungicide, and Rodenticide Act, also known as FIFRA, or the Economic Poisons Act. It would bring the protections previously applied to commercial industrial products to those same products in the home and expand those protections further. Of note, in the very text of this Economic Poisons Act, the law called for clear labeling of the ingredients, net weight or measure of the contents, as well as any substance or substances in quantities highly toxic to man with a label bearing the skull and crossbones, the word poison prominently in red on a background of distinctly contrasting color and a statement of a practical treatment 
first aid or otherwise in case of poisoning. A clear parallel to, if not entirely based upon, the Oregon law. From a hospital basement in Oregon to the United States Congress, a single costly and sadly all too common mistake had brought about real meaningful change, had done so without fracturing community and was so effective that FIFA remains in effect to this day, largely unchanged since its signing. That's 74 years now. While poisonings may never be fully prevented, this was a step and a big one. And while it seems there will always be a crisis to face, the question is, will we be able to come together and rise to the challenge? Or will the powder in the basement go unrecognized again until it's too late?